You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha, with Brandon. Today, we're going to have a special guest, Brian Mayer from the newspaper Brazilian Wire, join us to talk about the U.S. role in the coup against PT and how they helped get Bolsonaro elected. So, can you give us a quick overview of what Lava Jato was? Okay. Well, there's a law in the United States called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which was ratified after Watergate initially, that gives the U.S. Department of Justice powers to investigate corruption, crimes, and other countries if the company in question has any relationship to the United States, no matter how minimal it is. For example, if it has a bank account in the U.S., even if it's ever paid any kind of bribes and dollars. And so basically around 2009, the U.S. Department of Justice started a dialogue with the Curitiba Public Prosecutor's Office. Curitiba is a city in southern Brazil. Now, this law, the FCPA, it's called for short, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, it was kind of not used very much until the Enron scandal broke in 2003. And since then, it's been used more and more and more and more aggressively. So in 2009, we know from leaked State Department cables that DOJ officials were in Rio de Janeiro meeting with Sergio Moro and planning a kind of joint anti-corruption action. So around 2014, they started working and going after some big Brazilian companies. Now, this is after the NSA, the Snowden leaks, you know, revealed that the NSA had been spying on the Brazilian petroleum company, Petrobras, as a result of it discovering the, some of the world's largest offshore petroleum deposits, right? And so, starting in 2014, they worked to go after some big companies, but mainly it was to go after the PT party. You know, they uncovered all of this corruption involving Petrobras and involving other Brazilian companies like Embraer. It was the third largest aviation company in the world at the time, and it's just been bought by Boeing after its stock value went down because of the Lava Jato investigation. So they started going after these companies, but the main goal always seemed to be going after the PT party. And there were constant leaks to the media many of which were not based on any facts or anything, that gave the Brazilian population and a lot of the world population the impression that President Dilma Rousseff was involved in Petrobras corruption. Okay, When it came up for her impeachment, she was only impeached for committing a budgetary infraction. They never found any proof that she was involved in this corruption whatsoever. Just so people get the context, it's more equivalent to, say, having an accounting error, and that's what they impeached her for. Exactly. It was something that, it was an infraction, a budgetary infraction, so it was a non-impeachable offense, and um, it was something that was widely practiced in all city and state governments in Brazil, and by every president who was a predecessor to Dilma. Basically, it was like shuffling money from one ministry to another, to cover a gap, to make it look like it wasn't in the red or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So regardless, after she was impeached, she was exonerated from those charges. She didn't actually really do it. 
And the day after she was impeached, they legalized it in the Senate. It's not even a crime anymore. But she was constantly associated with the Operation Car Wash in the New York Times and, and in other Anglo newspapers in the lead up to the impeachment. Okay, so after she was impeached, they started going after former President Lula. And they've been basically the sectors of the right wing Brazilian judiciary which is able to investigate, perform investigations as well, have been trying to arrest Lula on something since he was elected president. And they've never found enough evidence to implicate him in any crimes. And so... One thing, Brian, maybe you should explain what the poverty level of Brazil was before Lula became president and what changed after Lula became president so people get context. Okay, well, I lived, I moved to Brazil in 1991. And, you know, when I first moved to Rio de Janeiro in 1991, there were like 20,000 homeless families living in boxes in Copacabana. And, you know, you could see visibly the face starvation on the face of people on the street on a daily basis. And Brazil had this massive hunger crisis that resulted in growth stunting of millions of kids in the Northeast, which is the poorest region. Like when Lula took office, the minimum wage was $49 a month, okay? And after he took office, people often try and write off the work that they did to fight poverty as, oh, Brazil just had a commodities boom, and this is why the economy improved. But it's BS, because Brazil's always underwent commodities boom and bust cycles. And a commodities boom in itself doesn't do anything to alleviate poverty unless there's redistributive measures. And so what Lula did... And okay, there was a commodities boom, but there was also the world economic, world um, subprime mortgage crisis that happened while he was president. And he kept Brazil out of the recession, basically, because of that. Uh, there was like one quarter of very minor negative growth, 0.2 or something. But yet, the growth averaged like 7.5% a year when he was president. At least that was his best year, 7.5. But that's not the point. What he did was he made massive increases to the minimum wage. Okay, so, and it didn't create unemployment like conservatives in the U.S. try to argue what happened. So when he left office, the minimum wage had grown from like $49 a month in dollar terms to over $300 a month. Still not perfect, but this coupled with other policies he did to stimulate internal manufacturing and consumption, he connected the minimum um, monthly retirement pension checks to this, the minimum salary, which beforehand it was lower, like it is in the U.S. I mean, it's really absurd that in the U.S., minimum social security payments aren't equal to the minimum wage, like they are in a lot of European countries. But so, And he created this program called Zero Hunger, which guaranteed a minimum monthly income for poor families if they kept their kids in school, which is often cited as the main reason poverty went down, but it's really only like a distant third after minimum wage hikes and locking the pension to the minimum salary. But because of all these measures, 40 million people, which is 20% of the Brazilian population, was lifted above the poverty line. And he refused to privatize the state petroleum company and the state banks. And this irritated a lot of people in the North, especially petroleum companies who wanted access to all of these offshore oil reserves. You know, and you see that since the 2016 coup, they privatized 75% of the offshore oil reserves, mostly to companies like Exxon, Mobile, Chevron, BP, and things like that. That's just one thing that happened as a result of 
Dilma's ouster and basically just turned, yeah. Wait, was there just a plain election and then it transitioned from Lula presidency to Dilma? Yeah, just regular elections. And Dilma was elected two times. And despite massive attempts by international capital to influence her to lose re-election, she still won. I mean, David Axelrod's PR firm came down to help electronic media campaigns of her opposition candidate, Ercio Neves. It was extremely corrupt. For those who don't know, David Axelrod was President Obama's campaign manager. Yeah, so it was like, it was really weird to me that the former company at that time, I think it was run by his son or something, that a company that was so associated with the U.S. Democratic Party would be trying to support a conservative opposition candidate to Dilma Rousseff in those elections. But that's what we know, you know. So basically, yeah. So what happened was the PT party won four consecutive elections for presidency. You know, and we're talking about a party that's like the closest you could say about how left they are compared to American presidents would be like Franklin Delano Roosevelt's. But in many ways, they were farther left than Roosevelt. You know, the most conservative faction within the PT is led by a guy named Fernando Haddad, and they're aligned with Bernie Sanders. Exactly. So the left won four consecutive elections in Brazil, and the conservatives and international capital apparently just decided we have to stop this any way we can. You know, we can't win at the ballots, so let's just take them down. And that's what they did. And, you know, the Intercept is now releasing... Apparently, they have 1,700 hours of conversations between these people from the Lava Jato Operation Car Wash. It's Lava Jato in Portuguese, you know, task force. And it's showing that they actively sabotaged the PT's chances of winning last year's presidential election. They deliberately threw Lula in jail, even though they they didn't have enough evidence. Slow down. Um, can we first talk about what the alleged corruption charge was for Lula? And the second question would be, what did they throw him in jail for? And also, what was his term for this corruption charge? Like, how long was his jail term? Okay. They tried to leak to the media that he was the leader of this massive organized crime organization. You know, and they tried to say that he was... This made it into the media as well, that he was involved in something like 49 million reais of bribery and corruption involving Petrobras Petroleum Company. But they never even raised the charges for any of this. In fact, in the final ruling, Judge Sergio Moro specifically says there's no relationship with Petrobras in the charges against Lula, which from a legal standpoint, meant that he had no legal authority over the case because the case was based in Sao Paulo and his, his offices were based in a neighboring state that didn't have jurisdiction over Sao Paulo. So what they accused Lula of initially was receiving a free apartment and receiving free reforms on this apartment and from a construction company that was corrupt in exchange for political favors. Now, first of all, they ran into a lot of problems in the new, you know, tape, uh, the new social media conversations that were released by The Intercept show this. They themselves were saying they didn't have any evidence on him to convict him as they were doing it because they could never prove that he had ever owned or set foot in this apartment. 
the entire time they were talking about this apartment to the media, they were acting like it was this huge luxury apartment. There was actually a pretty crappy little beachfront apartment. And from what I understand, his wife visited the building and was thinking of buying an apartment there. And the owners of the building said, well, why don't we give you a larger apartment in the same building for the same price or something? And she got cold feet and pulled out and, you know, they never acted on it, never did it, never visited it, never, you know, the reforms that they were talking about the entire time after Lula was arrested, the MTST social movement broke into the building and took pictures and there had never been any reforms. They told the media that they had installed an elevator in the apartment, it was not there. You know, it, and it turned out to be pretty crappy, like a maybe like a hundred and sixty thousand dollar apartment, which is something that Lula would have been able to afford anyway. And the dates that they say that he received this apartment were after he left the presidency. So even if it had happened, it would have been really hard to prove that this was a kind of bribe or something because he had no political power at the time it happened. But since they were unable to prove that he owned the apartment. They ended up convicting him of undetermined acts of corruption. Okay? They couldn't even specify the charges properly in the ruling. You know, and there's been all kinds of examples of really sadistic behavior on the on the on behalf of the, you know, perpetrated by the Lava Jato task force, which I believe has been influenced by the US DOJ, by FBI methods and stuff. But so his sentence was nine years. Because Sergio Moro's nickname for Lula was nine because he has nine fingers. He lost a finger in a drill press accident when he was working in a factory when he was 14 years old. And so it was a kind of like sadistic sentence. They, they were all laughing about it at the time, you know. Oh, my God. Um, what was Lula's popularity rating before the 2017 election? Like, how popular was Lula? Yeah, 2018 election. Yeah, Lula was the front runner with more popularity than all the other candidates combined. Okay, he was predicted to win even after he was arrested when he said he was going to still run for office from behind bars three months after he was arrested with uh, all communication with the press barred illegally by the Lava Jato task force. He was still polling with over twice the support of Jair Bolsonaro. Okay, and Bolsonaro was promising to privatize everything. So do you want to talk about what kind of demagogue he is and just a quick explanation about the true horrors of Bolsonaro? Okay. Well, first of all, the coup, you know, government after Rousseff was thrown out by Michel Temer, they started privatizing everything too. Mm -hmm. The PT administrations had doubled funding for public education. They built 17 new totally free public universities with 120 campuses across Brazil. Wow. You know, and they and they started an affirmative action program reserving 50% of all slots in these public universities for poor kids who'd gone to public grammar school and high school with a special differential for Afro-Brazilians who make up like 52% of the population. So the, the number of Afro-Brazilian students in the university system quadrupled. And Dilma Rousseff passed a measure saying all profits from the state petroleum company from these offshore oil reserves would be allocated to the public education and health systems. And immediately when Temer took office, he canceled that resolution of Dilma Rousseff's and he enacted a constitutional amendment to freeze all public 
spending on health and education for 20 years. Wow. During a period where it was predicted that the population would grow by, you know, like 30 million people or something. And in addition, he privatized 75% of the offshore oil reserves. He crippled labor law, you know, destroyed the labor law system, which was much better than the U.S.'s at the time. Yep. You guys had a 13th month salary too, right? Yeah. I mean, we still have it. It's just hard, almost, it's very hard to get now because what Tamer did was he said that you can remain as a temp employee forever Uh. with no benefits. So that made just all kinds of businesses fired all of their employees immediately after this law passed and rehired them with no benefits. My God. So, but anyway, so Bolsonaro represented no significant change in terms of privatizations from Michel Temer. It's the same economic project, except that he's literally a fascist. So he couples this ultra neoliberal economic agenda with saying things like he told his followers to kill all the PT supporters in in one state he was campaigning. So the, the minute he was elected, he appointed Lula's captor, Sergio Mores, his super justice minister. And they're trying to pass a law right now that would enable police to shoot anybody they want if they feel afraid. Like being afraid is for shooting somebody. We are very familiar with that law in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, the point is, the police are already killing so many people in Brazil. Rio de Janeiro alone, the police have killed five people a day this year, wow. four of whom are Brazilians. And that's just one state. Okay, so it's like the amount of killing was all, is already through the roof without like giving them extra powers to kill more people. Oh and, you know, he's legalized gun ownership and uh, he's trying now to outlaw, to block all federal funding for sociology and philosophy. That's and crazy. And to remove these subjects from the high school curriculum. Is that a pander to reactionary elements to his base, or does he genuinely believe that like philosophy is evil or something? Well, uh, he was a actor in the military dictatorship, and during the dictatorship in 1971, they outlawed philosophy and sociology. Really? <laughs> I know, did because, not know that. Yeah, wow. It's like a bastion of communism or something. In his, in his eyes, everything you know, left of center is communist. I mean, he called the economist communist. <laughs> the economist <laughs> loves Pinochet. Like, the, the economy constantly loves Pinochet and they still haven't gotten over it. How, how does he do that? <laughs> it's outrageous, but, but it's from this... I almost swore there for a second, but it's from this kind of like Steve Bannon <laughs> who helped on his campaign, this far-right-wing garbage revitalization of the Nazi trope of cultural Bolshevism, right? During his inauguration speech, he said he was going to eliminate cultural Marxism. I thought that was code for Jews. It's a code word for like Jewish intellectuals. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's an anti-intellectual thing. Just like, yeah, like religious conservatives here. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. I mean, there's no (laughs) such thing as cultural Marxism. You know, like Marx didn't write about culture. It's It's an imaginary concept like the earth is flat or whatever like jesus used to ride around on a dinosaur (laughs) 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 there's this may be a slight diversion but there actually is a weird creationism museum in like i don't know it's like in ohio or kentucky or something and it has 
you know, pictures of like Adam and Eve next to dinosaurs. And there's actually a, a triceratops with a saddle. And you can, if you Google image search, like there's people like tourists taking pictures, riding the triceratops. It's bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I've seen, I've seen that. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're dealing with. Like, like people just believe anything they see on the internet now, you know. And the internet's controlled by Republicans, really. You know, <laughs> Zuckerberg and those people who control everything—they're they're they're all conservatives. And so, I think the algorithms favor this kind of garbage. Hey, this is Hamish McKenzie. I'm one of the founders of Substack, which is the platform that hosts the Historically podcast and newsletter, and Historically is funded purely through subscriptions. So people like you can go and pay some money to get the podcast and some subscriber-only episodes and subscriber-only newsletters, and that will keep Historically totally independent and uncompromised. It's historically.substack.com. Another guest kind of like just mentioned this. Bolsonaro is like an existential threat to all of life on Earth because he plans on deforesting the Amazon, right? Yeah, like he said, he doesn't believe indigenous people should have the right to live on reservations. And he's making moves to make it easier to steal land from indigenous peoples. And the biggest areas of preserved forest left in Brazil are on indigenous reservations, you know, because go figure, they're better at preserving forests than white people, <laughs> you know? And, and, and also, yeah, like uh, deforestation has just gone through the roof. Like during the PT years, it slowed down a lot. They weren't able to stop it or anything, you know, but it's, they made measures to make it harder and everything to, you know, they weren't a hundred percent successful, but but it's gone through the roof since Tamar took office, and now it's accelerating even more with Bolsonaro. So yeah, this is a threat to life on Earth. Okay, so basically they had an election where it would be equivalent of, say, having an election where we had Trump and we, we put Bernie Sanders in jail, right? Yes, exactly. That's what they did. And um, they only barred him from running one month before the election. So at this point, the PT party nominated Fernando Haddad. At first, The Guardian and some reporters from The Guardian on Twitter or whatever, and some of these other publications were trying to call him a populist, like they called, you know, Dilma and Lula populists or whatever. They're like, we've got two populists running against each other in the elections and blah, blah, blah. But Fernando Haddad is a, he's actually a university political science professor. Mm-hmm. You know, with a, a PhD, he's not, you know, he's a technocratic center-left intellectual. It's pretty hard to call him a populist. And he was a very good mayor of Sao Paulo. Like, one of the great achievements he did as mayor of Sao Paulo was that he reduced automobile traffic by 20% in three years. How did he do that? He built all of these express bus corridors to speed up the commute time so that during rush hour, it was often faster to take the bus than a car. The ah. cars are all stuck in Google. And he also put in hundreds of miles of bicycle lanes because basically during the PT years, they passed a national transportation law which said all mayors are required by law to prioritize public transportation, bicycles, and pedestrian traffic over the automobile. But most mayors just ignored this law. But Haddad actually like respected the guidelines of the law and put all of this 
implemented all of these things based on the law and it worked you know and since he was been out of the mayor they're like destroying bicycle lanes destroying bus, express bus corridors it's ridiculous he lowered the speed limits on a lot of roads too which made it faster to take public transportation and he did a lot of other things he facilitated the largest participatory development plan in the history of the world the city inside the city limits of sao paulo there's over 12 million people living there and in hundreds of neighborhood meetings over the course of like six months the entire population of the city was invited in to vote on what the development initiatives would be in the mayor's office and everything, a 10-year development plan. He set up a council for homeless policy that was made up entirely of homeless people voting on their own you know, laws and legislation that would policies that would affect their lives. Wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It was a really progressive... I mean, you look at progressive mayors in the U.S., you had this progressive city movement in the 70s and 80s with Dennis Kucinich, Bernie Sanders in Burlington, Vermont, Harold Washington in Chicago, etc. What Haddad did was more progressive than that stuff, you know? Uh, he was a, so I thought he was a really solid mayor, you know, and he, a good administrator also and all of that. And he was, a, he was a solid candidate. But one week before the election, Sergio Moro leaked information to all of the Brazilian media companies that Haddad was under investigation for corruption. And The Guardian and The New York Times repeated that. They repeated that, right? Yes. Now, um, first of all, that was a crime. It's illegal to accuse candidates of corruption during the month before the elections for obvious reasons, right? So that was a violation of Brazilian electoral law. Secondly, the charges he was referring to had already been dismissed for not having any evidence. And he was fully absolved from any kind of corruption charges this January, you know? So in this sense, he was helping as the intercept, you know, leaked conversations are coming out and showing, he was deliberately helping Bolsonaro win. Now, Bolsonaro's vice president, General Hamilton Morão, which is creepy enough that your vice president would be a general, but even he said, Bolsonaro met with Sergio Moro's people before the uh, information was leaked to talk about him taking over the justice minister position. Oh, my God. Why would he admit that? That's a conflict. Really stupid. The vice president's fighting with, he's fighting with Bolsonaro. Oh, There's a power really? going on. Yeah, all of the rights infighting right now. The Supreme Court, the, <laughs> the Congress, you know, the Congress is fighting. That's why Bolsonaro, the pro-Bolsonaro protests, which happened on uh, May 26th, which The Guardian gave equal time to, the massive education protests that put one million people on the streets of hundreds of cities in two days, two weeks apart from each other, when the Bolsonaro protests put like 30,000 people in Sao Paulo, 30,000 in Rio, and a couple hundred people in other cities around the country, the Guardian gave that equal treatment, you know, but those protests, the pro-Bolsonaro protests, they were calling for shutting down the Supreme Court and shutting down Congress, just like the Nazi protests in the 30s, you know, the beginning of Hitler's government. Wow. And the Guardian, you know, I saw this Twitter circle jerk going on with a bunch of expat or for you know foreign correspondents on here including a guy who's written for jacobin you know who people went out to the right-wing protest they didn't protest they didn't go to the le the education protest they went to the bolsonaro protest and tweeted out photos and said oh these people they don't look that radical 
It's like, well, they're calling for shutting down the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter what they look like. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's obvious class bias. It's why the Nazis in Charlottesville wore freaking polos. They're upper middle class. Of course, they look like the people that are covering them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're white, middle, uh, upper middle class whites. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And mostly men in their 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. The leaks have told us that a lot of this was pre-planned. Does Brazil have a constitutional mechanism to say maybe cancel the election or do anything like that? Or what's up for Brazil next? Yeah, I mean, they could. The problem is that we see that the courts, you know, the only reason Lula went to jail in the first place, the reason that the Supreme Court ruled to make an exception to Brazilian law, allowing them to imprison Lula while his appeals processes were still underway, right, was because this very powerful military general, General Vilas Boas, came on national television. Well, he tweeted out something that was read in, on primetime national television in the biggest, most popular news program in the country, essentially threatening the Supreme Court ministers <laughs> uh, if they didn't vote in favor of imprisoning Lula. Wow. You know, and the military scares people because, you know, in the, during the dictators, they're very good at causing people to die in car accidents and plane accidents and stuff like that. I mean, it's only recently come out that Juscelino Kubitschek, the former president, the car accident that killed him was caused by the military, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. So they, they, they're good at that kind of stuff. So like one of the justices who had the swing vote, because it was like 5-5 five, five or whatever, she said, well, I'm going to vote against my better judgment and side with the people who want to put Lula in jail. And she was visibly like nervous and sweating and shaking and stuff. Rosa Weber, she was scared. You know, you could see she was scared. That's why she did it. So even though there's mechanisms in place, what the left social movements, unions and things that make up the Brazilian organized left are calling for now is exactly that, annulling the elections because of fraud and holding new elections within 90 days with Lula as a candidate. But we have to see what happens. I think Greenwald's going to have to start leaking a lot more stuff to build <laughs> momentum, you know, because like Global right now, some of the big, all the papers, even the Guardian and New York Times are like downplaying this as much as they can. New York it's Times ridiculous. has been silent. They're still busy trying to foment a coup against Maduro. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. It sounds like the military basically, like, sort of tolerated the rise of a civilian government, but they were never really brought under the power structure or under the authority of the civilian government that came after the dictatorship. What would have to be done to do that, to make them subservient to elected officials or the president going forward, assuming there's a change in government? There'd have to be, well, you know, on paper, they can't even be involved in politics according to the constitution. And now there's like 17 military people in Bolsonaro's cabinet. There's actually more military wow. people in, in charge of government ministries now than there were in the dictatorship. Wow. <laughs> Good heavens. So, so the law, the problem is like what a lot of people are saying is since 2016, we're living in a state of exception. The rule of law is no longer valid. It's not, being respected. So it's hard to say, but the main root of this problem is that when the dictatorship ended, 
they gave amnesty to all of the military who were involved in the dictatorship for all the crimes. And they allowed the two largest political parties from, during the dictatorship, you know, it was really important during the Cold War to pretend that you had a democracy. So any dictatorship that received massive U.S. support, like the Brazilian dictatorship, they had to have like two political parties. <laughs> so there were two official parties in the dictatorship. All the other parties were outlawed. And both of these parties obviously were conservative. One was the official government party called Arena, which is now called Democrats in Brazil, Dem. And the other was called the MB. And that was Michel Temer's party. And both of these parties were allowed to continue just changing their names after the dictatorship ended. And all of these congressmen and senators who were in power during the dictatorship stayed in power during the civilian rule. You know, and they, these two parties continued as the two biggest parties in the country for a long time. Lula was the first president who was able to govern without both of these parties in his ruling coalition, but he still had to accept the PMDB, which was the official opposition party from the dictatorship, in his coalition to get anything done. And that's the party that Michel Temer belongs to. And we see how they completely ended up stabbing Dilma Rousseff in the back, the first opportunity they could get when her popularity started dropping. Why were those parties allowed to continue after the dictatorship? Why And why was amnesty given to the, um, the leaders? I think because they were heavily involved in the transition to civilian rule. <laughs> like they were the ones designing the new, you know, I mean, there, there was the Brazilian constitution is a really wonderful document because they allowed people to have these people's petitions to create amendments. And there's some really amazing amendments that were created, like, for example, a lot of slumlord behavior in the U.S. is totally illegal in the U.S., in Brazil. If you don't pay real estate taxes on a vacant building for five years, any group of people who don't own other property are allowed to go in and squat in it. And the government has to disappropriate the building from its original owner and convert it into ownership-based low-income housing. And this is a con- this is in the Brazilian Constitution, you know? Wow. So there's some good measures in there, but the transition, like, they never really purged the government of military. And yeah, another thing that happened is the, the military police, who are the ones who are killing all of these people, they've been allowed since the end of the military dictatorship to operate outside of the rule of law. So they're self-policing. They have their own court system, but they can't be tried in a regular court of law. So that you know that, that's why the police are so fascist in Brazil, and that's why it's, they're so hard to control. During the 2013 protests and everything a lot of american leftists were saying look at how terrible dilma's police are but the police are controlled by the governors but that amount of control that they have over the police is often very tenuous because the police are now so corrupt and so connected to organized crime and things like that they're almost uh, independent you know and of course bolsonaro is their darling so they're all happy now with the bolsonaro government do you want to talk about Sergio Mora's connection to American, where he studied and what he did in America? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the fact that, yeah, he took a course at Harvard once, you know, but that's in, I think it was 1999 or something like that. That's something that sometimes gets blown a little bit out of proportion. The main issue is that not his education or his time he spent in America. It's just that he's been working in a joint 
operation with the U.S. Department of Justice, the SEC, and the Swiss Federal Police, which is the Operation Car Wash, for the last five years. And that the U.S. Department of Justice and SEC have collected over $2.5 billion in fines from Brazilian companies. Interestingly enough, these were all companies that were competing with American corporations that have now been crippled, you know, so it directly benefited U.S. corporations. And in March, they decided, the Department of Justice decided to gift $680 million to the Lava Jato Operation Car Wash team so that they could open a privately managed foundation, anti-corruption foundation, $680 million. And this is illegal in Brazil. And so even the you know, corrupt right-wing Brazilian court system, the chief justice of the Superior Justice Court, which is like the second biggest court in the country, like blocked it and said, no, this is, we have to give this to the education system. You can't just take this money and open a private foundation. That's a crime. It violates transparency laws. So the DOJ tried to help these Lava Jato people commit a crime of corruption. And that was under Obama, just so people understand. The operation started under Obama. Yeah, I mean, there's some indications. We've done, me and my partner, Dan Hunt at Brazil, we've researched this extensively, and we see signs of this beginning under the Bush administration. And I spoke with Mark Weisbrot about this. I interviewed him once about this. And he kind of thinks that the foreign policy in Latin America operates regardless of who's in the presidency. Okay, so like Obama's ultimately responsible for what happened. However, Weisbrot's opinion is that he doesn't think Obama was paying very much attention to it. He was kind of like, okay, guys, just do whatever you want. You know? I, I totally agree with that. I think that was true about his foreign policy in a lot of ways. He seemed to kind of let the State Department largely do its own thing. I, I don't really know why. Well, I think it's um, irresponsible on his part, that's for sure. But maybe the president doesn't have that much power, you know? I don't know. Oh, no, he does. I mean, he could have. He, I mean, like, he, he's the one who, well, for one, like, appointed Hillary Clinton to the State Department in the first place. I mean, I think if he really, really, really wanted a, a radically different foreign policy, I mean, he, he could have gone with someone else. Definitely, because Hillary Clinton, like, she admits that she helped uh, with the coup in Honduras in, her, in the hardcover version of her autobiography, and that's removed from a softcover version. Right, yeah. They only did that edit after that started to become a big deal. I think it was during the uh, the 2016 primary. Yeah. So she was, you know, horrible, really. And so by proxy, so was, so was Obama. You know, I got, in yeah. a, I got in huge fights with old friends over this when I started saying Obama was behind the coup in 2016. You know? That's obvious. Some, <laughs> yeah. So it's too bad because... I remember just everyone had all these hopes for Obama. What a joke. Did you have hopes? Yeah. Like, in Brazil, like people were having hopes too? Well, you know, I'm from Chicago. Oh, you are. And my dad was, I, I've been in Brazil 25 years, you know, but my dad was Harold Washington's commissioner of economic development in the 80s. Oh, wow. And I okay. actually worked as a law clerk in Davis Minor in Galland. At, at the time, they were hiring Obama. And my dad was family friends with Alice Palmer. This is a bit of a tangent, you know. But having met Obama once, my first impression that he was unpleasant, you know. I didn't like him very much. 
and I didn't like the way he was acting in Chicago politics. So when I found out he was running, I didn't support him at all. But then when it looked like he was going to win, I got really hopeful. And the people in Brazil got really hopeful too, because everyone hated Bush, you know, and I think he charmed everybody, you know? So like, I mean, when Obama called Lula the man in 2009, everyone was just ecstatic. <laughs> You know, that was a huge news down here. Every, people, were, I think even the PT party got kind of tricked by the Democrats and let their guard down with them, frankly. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it happens with a lot of progressives here, too. I mean, a number of people have kind of gone back and sort of parsed the language in his speeches and stuff like that. And I think in a lot of ways, he was really careful to kind of, like, I think he was... I'm sure you know more about him than I do, but I, the sense of him I got is that he was familiar enough with kind of like activist circles to sort of know the language without explicitly promising he was going to do anything radical. But he did a good job fooling people, and I, a lot of people were just so desperate for a change from Bush that he felt like a breath of fresh air. I mean, just the fact he was the first black Democratic lawmaker to not join the Congressional Black Caucus, which has swung to the right, obviously, in recent years. But even so, like that was a signal that he thought the Congressional Black Caucus was too radical to be fully affiliated with. You know, but whatever. I mean, so but bringing it back to Brazil, you know, I think that I honestly think from what I know, it seems like Dilma Rousseff honestly thought she had friends in the U.S. government. She had a friend with them for a period, at least, and at least till the coup really started until her reelection campaign, when they when Axelrod's former PR company came down to work with the, the right wing. I think for a while she kind of thought that the U.S. was kind of an ally. That's just pretty naive. That, that, that's very naive. But and it's kind of sad, too. And. Oh, one question that's been bothering Brandon and me for a while, maybe you can help us answer it. Um, uh -huh. When the U.S. tried to do the coup on Venezuela, it seems like China, Russia, and India came to Venezuela's rescue and just said, no, 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 like, you can't. How come they didn't do that with Brazil? Well, um, it's a good question. I don't know. China is the biggest trade partner with Brazil. Now, I didn't see India coming in much for Venezuela. Maybe I missed something, but I know China and Russia. It's, it's a geopolitical. I think, I think it's easier for China and Russia to come into Venezuela because it's a much smaller country, first of all, mm -hmm. and because it's a much more aggressive and quick coup attempt. The coup against Dilma Rousseff was all couched in legalistic terms. You know, so like... Okay, so Russia could send a missile defense system down to Venezuela. What would it have done to protect Brazil, protect Dilma Rousseff against the coup that was underway in Congress? By, you know, right. by, yeah. the, by the native comprador class of sellouts to the U.S. or whatever. It was, I think it would have been a lot trickier for them to kind of come in and do anything. And, and also, you have to understand, at the time of the coup, Brazil had a bigger economy than Russia, too. Russia's a big military imperialist power, but in terms of economics, they're not nearly as strong as China, you know? No. I mean, like, I, I, I was in a, well, I have, a, I have a Russian friend who was pointing that out in these BRICS lectures I went to in South Africa like a month and a half ago. It's like Russia is a weird hybrid country because it's militarily imperialist, but economically insular. 
<laughs> I, I, I was just in Russia, and I can see what you're saying by that. Um, yeah, it seems like absolutely like uh, Brazil does. Like from my, I when I visited Brazil, Lula was in power. Yeah, so there is a lot more industry and manufacturing going on in Brazil. Oh, quick aside for for people listening, BRIC is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And you know, like it's a weird organization, the BRICS, because it started as IBSA, which was just Brazil, India, and South Africa, and that was this kind of like South South solidarity, you know, reminiscent of the old non-aligned movement of we third world powers have to stand together against imperialism, and then China and Russia join in. They're not like southern third world countries, and they're kind of like imperialist in their own way. And I think a lot of people had hopes that the BRICS would be this kind of counter-hegemonic force against U.S. domination in the world and everything. But it seems like at some measures, especially China and Russia, they're acting like almost like a copy of the U.S. in some third world countries, you know? But nevertheless, there's some people saying that they think that the coup in Brazil one of the motives behind it was that the U.S. wanted to drive a wedge into the BRICS. That would make you perfect know? sense. Yeah. And, um, right. And one question. Um, for Americans who are listening to this, like, what can they do to help the people of Brazil? I think the best thing you can do at this point is call your congressman, you know, and ask them to demand that Lula be freed. Rokana made this demand individually. There's this core group in Congress of progressive Democrats, you know, numbering between like 30 and 40, who the entire time, like they complained about the coup against Dilma. They manifested, they wrote a manifesto against Lula's political imprisonment. And they've been a lot of this through a lot of hard work by progressive factions within the AFL-CIO. Because a lot of American so-called leftists, you know, who sit around chirping at each other on the internet about how left this or that ruler or country is, they weren't showing a lot of solidarity during this whole period. You know, unfortunately, I read a lot of left writing that during the coup and during Lula's imprisonment, it seemed like it was all focused on criticizing the PT as if this whole result was caused by their mistakes and not like these massive external forces and internal forces of capitalism that were like, you know, trying to take the nation's oil <laughs> or something, you know? So I think that at this moment, with all of these revelations coming up by The Intercept, it would be a really good moment to like contact even lawmakers who are Republican or who are moderate Republicans or, or moderate Democrats, if they're in your district and just say you're a voter and you want them to make a statement again about freeing Lula. Because Lula's not, it's not just him, the individual. It's, he represents a, a project for the nation that's been killed. You know, like his project was this social democratic welfare state that he was building, you know, very successfully. And so even, he's a symbol of that project. If he's freed, it strengthens the Brazilian left. You know, it's, it's not just about like him, the individual. And so I think that's one thing that could be done, you know. Another thing maybe try and get some boycotts going against anything related to Bolsonaro, you know, I guess uh, that would be helpful. You know, I, I, what's needed is solidarity, not criticism at this point of the Brazilian left. 
the Brazilian left on the retreat and what it needs is solidarity. And I, and Americans should think if they're interested in helping, think of ways that they could express this solidarity and, you know, well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming along. Um, can you tell people what your website is and how they find more news on Brazil, like the English language news? Okay, well, the website that I co-edit is called Brazil Wire, Brazil with an S, www.brazilwire.com. And we have a book out called Year of Lead. Uh, we publish more articles in the English language about Lula's political imprisonment and the rise of Bolsonaro of any other publication in the world, over 80 articles. And this book is an anthology of some of the best writings, over 20 authors, and it can be purchased at our site as well. And I'd also recommend tuning in to the Telesur News English News Show from the South, because I'm a correspondent for them as well. And so, you know, that's those are the two places I appear Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming here so quickly, Brian, and uh, we love having you, and I hope you can come here again. Anytime. I like your guys' questions. You do a lot of research before the interviews, and that's impo- you know that makes it a lot easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, and have a good evening. Thanks. You guys, too. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.